This is Queer Histories, Queer Futures, presented by Last Call, a podcast about queer resistance in New Orleans and the people behind the movement. I'm free for all. Hello, 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 hello. Greetings um, from the apocalypse. (laughs) Um, Not to catastrophize. This is free. Um, How are you doing out there? It's getting weird, huh? Yeah, it's getting weird. Um, Says a lot that this morning I remembered that um, just last week there was a huge earthquake in Utah. I had forgotten about the earthquake in Utah. Um, And these devastating tornadoes in Tennessee just a week before that. And it's... um, It feels like a little crazy out there. Um, While it is also clearly very calm out there in an eerie way. Um, I don't know what it's like where you are, but in New Orleans, there is an unbelievable absence of people in the street. And I hope that it works. I hope that it um, keeps us all safe and healthy long enough that we can actually, um, as they keep saying, flatten the curb, curve, flatten the curve, but stay safe, stay healthy out there, um, stay socially connected, um, while you are physically distanced, um, don't watch too much TV and, um, or spend too much time on the internet, um, get outside and, um, and, you know, I I just want to also acknowledge the the heroes of the moment who are, of course, the, the medical community. Thank you so much for everything that you're doing to keep us all safe and sane. But also um, all the people who are laborers of varying professions who are keeping working throughout this. I know that construction is still underway here. Um all of the people who are collecting garbage, who are making sure the water stays running and the electricity keeps going, um, the people working in the grocery stores, um, who are many of them not even making a living wage, don't have any kind of health benefits whatsoever, have little to no protective gear also in this situation where they are coming into contact with strangers all day, every day. Um, uh, If you have any way of offering your appreciation to those people, please do. Um, I know there's um, the New Orleans uh, Hospitality Workers Alliance is organizing um, right now, as well as the New Orleans People's Assembly organizing on behalf of those workers. But any efforts that you hear about um, in your local area, and you have, if you have the means, which I know a lot of us are 
struggling financially, let alone who knows what money's going to mean in a few months. Um, but uh, if you have the means and you can support um, those efforts, please do. That's my um, little TED Talk for the moment. Um, but I, I actually came here because I wanted to um, share with you this piece, new podcast episode that I made and presented live at um, my friends Nick Vaughn and Jake Margolin's um, art opening in Houston a few weeks ago. So Nick and Jake, um, you can find them at nickandjakestudio.com. And they have this project called 50 States, where they are on a mission to make um, research into the queer history of each of the 50 states and to make an art installation um, with kind of a voiceover that does a real deep dive into one of those stories and its intersections with capitalism and its intersections with um, all these other facets of our society. Um, So they've done Texas, they've done Colorado, they've done Oklahoma, they've done Wyoming, they've done Arkansas, and then um, they presented their Louisiana piece in Houston at Diverse Works um, just a couple weeks ago, and it was actually scheduled to be up through April 12th, I believe, and I'm not sure what's happening with it now. If you're in the Houston area, you can go check the Diverse Works website and find out what's going on with that. It's a beautiful, beautiful piece um, about a shipwreck and the first commercial shipment of indigo and Mardi Gras cruise, and it is such a beautiful weaving of very many different threads into the the history of Louisiana and um, these particular queer stories. And um, I hope you get a chance to see it there. Um, I think there's a dream to bring it not on the road, but on the water through some waterways in the Gulf South. So stay tuned for that. So Nick and Jake approached me and asked me to interview some women here in New Orleans who founded, um, as far as we know, the first lesbian Mardi Gras crew, which is called the Crew of Ishtar. And um, so uh, I made this piece from that interview. And um, that's all I'll say for the moment. I hope you enjoy it. So let me yeah. ask you a question. Yeah. Being a young person, yeah. would you, what if some carnival club decided, a ladies' carnival club decided to form, would you be interested in being a part of something like that? Um, I'm going to start with some cold, hard facts about me. Mardi Gras has never been my thing. It's kind of cursed for me, actually. I tried for years to get into it only to be met time and again with uncanny bad luck. Add to that that I'm not good with crowds or drunks. I hate the parades. It's not 
prudishness or being judgmental. I don't think others should not enjoy it. I just can't get into it. I'm already anxious by nature, and that isn't helped by the frenzied energy of it. I do not need to be shown how to enjoy it. There will be no silver bullet experience or drug cocktail that will change my mind. I think it brings out the worst in a lot of people. That's just my opinion. Maybe I should say my experience. These days, I try to avoid the season altogether. So when Jake said, will you interview these women about the lesbian Mardi Gras crew they founded in the 80s? I said, hell yeah, because I like lesbians. And anxious as I am, I am also curious. So I invited them over, these three ladies. They came to our house with king cake, another aspect of carnival season I typically find to be all hype and no substance, though my sweet tooth never permits me to pass on it altogether. They were already talking when they came in. We had never met, but they knew I was involved with Last Call. They were somewhat familiar with the project. And they had some complaints right off the bat. So there's a lot a lot of history that got eliminated. That, yeah, that was that, that I, part that of the foundation. Think, that I think is unfortunate. <clears throat> well, yes. and probably yeah. the generation of people that they interviewed had no clue that it all started with you have better have three pieces of women's clothing on. Well, mm-hmm. that's, that's, we heard that. Bar. Yeah, you get arrested. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? That's why so, Alice Brady. I should have taken a picture right. of Alice that's Brady. That's somewhat mm-hmm. true. All the women bar owners that I knew were really played a large role mm-hmm. in the community. Mm-hmm. And like you said earlier, starting with right. Alice. Alice Brady owned a bar called Brady's in the French Quarter in the 60s. Marsha later said that an appropriate monument to the lesbian bar scene of those days would be Alice Brady, standing no taller than she did in life, about five foot two or so, dressed as always in her white button-up shirt and navy blue skirt, like a nun out of habit, guarding her bar and all those dykes right to be there. Like I said, legends and the Salt Dove and yeah. the clinic and, you know, Tony's Garage. And, right. You know, all of these other places where women own establishments but right. never got put it in the mix mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so you know i agree with you big time well <laughs> that's exactly that's why i think a lot of times in general when history is supposedly being written mm-hmm. it depends on who Ooh. is doing it and yeah. who that person is talking to <clears throat> so who are we talking to By the way, they were so animated and excited to talk about their experiences that it took over an hour to get to a point in the interview where I could remember to ask them to state their names. Gail Pellerin. Diane DiMaselli. And Marsha Robert. You're talking to two royalties, two kids. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) as Pino. Actually, I was hurt, Paige. Yeah. Per se. Oh, As Pino oh, would say, you know, once royalty, always royalty. Always royalty. So. They should say, say, don't you bow down to nobody ever. Yeah. <laughs> once royalty, she's a little Italian, you know, and I oh. thought she'd talk with her little finger, you know. Yeah. <laughs> 
Diane and Marsha both served as kings of the all-lesbian Mardi Gras crew Ishtar in the early 80s. Gail was a page, as you might have heard her mention. Pino, Rosemary Pino, who was Diane's queen, owned a bar called Pino's on Elysian Fields. It was Pino, Diane, and Sue Martino who founded the crew of Ishtar in 1981. Diane also owned a bar called Diane's. It was a mixed bar, men and women, with mostly gay clientele in a period where gay nightlife was at a high point in New Orleans. There were a lot of bars. Yeah. In the heyday of gay life, there were a lot of bars as, as carnival clubs. I think there was 15 mm -hmm. carnival clubs. Mm. I mean, it was like... I don't know if that many. Well, there were a lot. Yeah. I mean, there were a lot. 10, 12, something like that. I, I would have to really name them, but... Uh, Almond Rye is still around, Armenius. Petronius is the oldest one. Mm. There was Lords of Leather. Apollo. Uh, Apollo. There was Hugo, you something. But there were some that maybe only lasted two years. And, right. you know, and then they folded up. But a lot of carnival clubs. Ishtar <clears throat> was the Ishtar only was, woman's yeah. club. Now, Wayne said they did found other clubs, but they never paraded. It was like organizations, but it wasn't a ball. It was just like more like a social club, but they right. called themselves a Mardi Gras group. So, right. But we didn't know about them. Oh. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. To be clear, Ishtar never did parade. While it is traditional for many Mardi Gras crews to parade, none of the gay crews did in those days. It was too dangerous. Instead, they focused their energy into expanding another tradition of Mardi Gras crews, the balls. During Mardi Gras season, you were going to a ball every night on the yeah. weekend. Mm. Every night was a ball. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, there were balls. And mainly men's balls. That's the sad part about it. Right. Plus, Mardi Gras, you got to remember, just before it even started, that was your day to be who you are, mm. whatever you want to be. Mm. Not necessarily. And it was legal. And nobody, so, yeah. and nobody could do you anything. And you couldn't get arrested. You couldn't right. get... Back then, you know, there was, there was still somewhat the butch and femme interaction that went on. So, you know, if, if I was wearing a tux, whoever I was with was usually wearing a gown, mm -hmm. you know. Plus, it was to, when you do that many, it was cheaper to have a tux than 10 right. gowns. Right, I, I probably had four tuxedos and a pair of tails. Oh, wow. <laughs> now, in your typical hetero Mardi Gras ball, the court, which changes year to year, is presented to the public in elaborate costumes. The members of court are given a few call-outs where they are allowed to invite people from the audience, usually relatives, to dance with them. The public simply sits and watches. But the gay crews came along and we said, oh, no, no, that's too boring for us. We're going to have tables where people can bring what they want to drink and bring little sandwiches. But it was a lot of fun because you could have your own friends like at your dance. table. After, after the yes. presentation right. of the cruise, right. then it broke down to just a big dance party and music. Right. Know. Right. A lot more fun than the uh, yeah, heterosexual clubs. Mm -hmm. From what I understand, it was really started to mock the heterosexual clubs with all their, right. you know, pomp and circumstances of everything had to be just so and all that. And 
heterosexual club started saying, hey, wait, they got the right idea. Yes. This is fun. <laughs> and they, they were bad for tickets. Yeah. They would do anything for those tickets yeah. to get in our balls. A friend of mine's mom worked at a bank at Whitten, <laughs> local bank. And um, her mother and all her girlfriends, oh, can't wait, Mardi Gras, we're going to get all, our, all the gay guys and give them tickets. Could not wait to go to sick. Because they knew they were going to have fun at the gay balls. Mm. Where when they go to their brother-in-law's ball at the auditorium, it's pomp and circumstance. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of straight high school <laughs> women love going to this. And if you said women, it really was about the husbands. I'm not going to that. <laughs> it would be all of, like all of my school teacher friends, they would come. Mm. Yeah, the women like... And they just loved the glamour. They loved how, how they put it on like no other. Because they knew all these men were putting their own beautiful costumes mm. together. And it was very creative, you know, yeah. whereas the heterosexual balls were, you know, more or less the, the, the feathers and the plumes. velvet and plumes and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And but, you know, you'd, you'd have a gay ball where somebody would create something out of plastic bags, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, and, and make something fabulous. Mm -hmm. So, it was, in my opinion, it was much more creative. Chances are most of these clubs were sitting in a bar and said, hey, let's do that. You be clean, you be king. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you started just that conversation exactly. in somebody's bar. And so we just said let's form a club let's, let's find this. out how to get to charter and you know we started talking to other people with women yeah well yeah we'll join yeah yeah you know and so then it just it just happened mm -hmm. you know it was just talk in the bar why can't the women why don't we have a, a, a crew mm -hmm. so we said well let's make it happen honey let's make history and we mm -hmm. didn't the roles emerged organically diane was president Pino was secretary-treasurer, and Sue Martino was the captain, responsible for the visioning and planning of the big event. Ishtar was never a very large crew. At its peak, there were only 20 to 30 people involved, but everyone found a niche in the community. You know, in any organization, I think you have a core few who do everything, mm -hmm. more or less, mm -hmm. and the other people come. So there were a lot of people that were very supportive of the organization. You know, some didn't belong, but they would be supportive. Like like Marsha said, a lot of the, the women that were butchy, you know, they'd come with their, their what, what do you call it? Tool belts. Tool, belt. tool belts, whatever, ready to go. What do you want me to build? What do you want me to build? I'll build it. I'll do it, you know. They um, took a pride in participating, mm -hmm. you know. Right. Right. Well, even like Bear, she said, I never stepped foot on the stage, but I was always back there nailing and hammering right, and right, painting. And right. So as many people you, you may have not seen out on that floor, but they were just, without like them, stage it couldn't go, it wouldn't have happened because you didn't have the stage no, set like or the sound group. system or the whatever. And, the, and like I said, the gay guys, I mean, all the captains of, of, of all the balls that, that, you know, like Marsha said, we knew because we were a mixed bar. So we, were, we, we had that in with the guys, you know, would help you out. They would just, I mean, I'm going to say this. I don't know if we could have pulled it off without the help of the gay men. Mm -hmm. Probably not. You know, they I were very the instrumental because they had been through it. They had done it. And it's what they loved. I mean, all the guys that were queens were like, oh, girl, don't worry. We got this. Don't worry. Okay, girl, we'll show you what to do. We'll, 
That's not a problem. And they were just right there with us. There was no animosity. They were happy that we had formed something for the women. In total, the crew of Ishtar threw five balls, all with different themes. In 1981, the crew of Ishtar proudly presents its Alpha Ball, the modern goddess of Babylon. The curtains parted for the first time to introduce the magnificent lioness captain, who was followed by the goddess Ishtar and her golden chariot, that was Pino. The following year, 82, the crew of Ishtar celebrated the triumph over women's suffrage by acknowledging women's achievements and accomplishments with the theme, I am woman. And that's when I was Mae West. We had um, Amelia Earhart, uh, yeah. you know, different women. The year I was Mae West, I came out to the song, All of Me. I, mean, I almost got credit for being a drag queen. She brought it um, well, Marsha always had very pretty legs, so she, she worked it. There was also Music, 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 which was essentially a dance review. The year Marsha was king, the theme was Space Odyssey. Don't you think I had the hottest queen? Jay. 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 <laughs> Don't you think I had the best queen? Yeah, you right, honey. It was hot. She wants you to send her some of those pictures. You, you didn't... All these things are building up to the ball. You only had one night of going to the auditorium to walk through what you were doing. Mm -hmm. So we were clueless as to what the hell. I mean, I knew what I'm supposed I didn't even know sometimes what the costume looked like till the last couple of weeks. When they, when you, when they opened those curtains yeah. or however you came out, <laughs> you know, that was it. You, 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 there was no, I don't think anybody had froze up ever. Oh no, no you no. get this rush, you know, and then you think, right. Dude, we could have... You just got with it. You had the music. We could have just, just stood there and they were going to carry it. The audience was right. going to carry it, yeah. you know. We also had entertainment in between the presentations of what you would call the maids. Mm -hmm. You know, some group of dancers and... Right. The crew of Ishtar loved to put on a show. Throughout the year, they would do all kinds of events to raise money for the crew to make the next year's ball bigger and better. They put on dances and garage sales, anything they could come up with. But their favorite fundraisers were clearly the talent shows. We would try to perform some bit of talent that we might have. Right. <laughs> I remember doing skates on stage because I could skate and I'm dancing and something like that. But one the of my fish favorite, sisters, that yeah, was your oh best. god, the fish sisters. Yeah, that that was an act that we did for a fundraiser. The Not fought Ishtar, the Fish Sisters. The Fish Sisters. It was, yeah, we, it was basically um, three of us. One played the saxophone, and we were doing a takeoff of the Andrew Sisters. Uh -huh. And the song was Hold Tight. And the words of the song are, I like shrimp and rice, very nice, hold tight. It was okay. And it's a real jobby, forty song. And it says, uh, my favorite dish is fish. Well, my friend's dad would fish a lot, and I called her, I said, Debbie, get one of dad's fish and bring it over. And so we get on stage, and we sing this song, and when the song says, and I get my favorite dish, fish. Well, I had real lot, well, they were dead, but a lot of fish hanging between my legs. <laughs> It and, was so hilarious. And they just thought this was hysterical. The they guys, just went nuts, okay? The gay guys lost it. Yeah. They just they just lost it. I don't know if I should admit this on uh, being recorded, but it wasn't until I went to Travis's and did it for them 
I don't even get the connection of the man referring to us as fish. Oh. It was just to me part of the song. And so I just had a visual. And then, then it exploded in my mind. So I worked it even more. <laughs> and I was like, we did this thinking one time. So every time I'd have to go to the store and buy fish and strain the fish. Um, yeah, and then I'd take all the lemon and lime and rub it on my legs after we did the number. And we thought, oh, it's a one-time thing. 25 years of calling us back to the stage over the years. If I'd have known that, I could have given up my teaching job. Yeah. Like, how, who was in it? Was it racially diverse as a crew? There were Spanish people and there were, you did. We didn't have any black. We didn't have black. I thought there was a black girl. No, I don't think we had any. Because you didn't, you really didn't have a present population of black in our balls. Like I could tell you earlier, I could count on really one hand the ones I knew, but the ones that would sometimes come in the ball with them. Maybe ten people. Right, and yeah. and I think it's because of what we're saying. It's not because we wouldn't have allowed it, mm -hmm. but for some yeah. reason, rather black gay women just didn't come out. Really. In our research into lesbian and queer spaces of the era, Last Call learned about multiple black queer spaces. There was Chucky's Dome. Pinstripes and Lace, The Other Side. There was also Les Pierres, to which we dedicated an entire episode in our first season. Ishtar operated differently than a lot of traditional hetero crews. They were not exclusive, the way a lot of the older crews were, who often award membership on a hereditary or nepotistic basis. One of New Orleans' oldest crews, the crew of Rex, did not open up to non-white membership until 1991, and then only because a city ordinance commanded it. It is my understanding that it is still largely a white crew that functions basically as they did before that ordinance was passed. Here's Gail. So I think, unfortunately, in the late 70s and early 80s, you still had that, that fear of us being white going into black bars and black still fearing mm -hmm. to go in whites, even though it could happen, I think it's still you was And you know, mm -hmm. I gotta say, when I was- And then the gay issue on top of it, so. Mm -hmm. The white supremacist elephant in the room. Marsha wanted me to point out that it was an intentional exclusion by the 80s, just what occurred through comfort and availability. Truly, Nearly 40 years after the crew of Ishtar was established, New Orleans is still like this. Most American cities are, in my experience. You might find a sprinkling of people of color in an otherwise white space or vice versa, but by and large, we still operate along the same old color lines. Mardi Gras parades are one of the few places I've seen these lines get blurred, actually. There are places along the route that are far less blurry than others, and you can still see the divisions of class quite clearly, even while people are rubbing shoulders, reaching for plastic beads. But when I was in college, and a friend of mine was close friends with some of the blacks, I went on Basin Street. I went and saw the Aubrey twins out in Gentilly. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, and, that, and I came from a 
totally white, grown up neighborhood. Mm -hmm. But that's where the music was. And I loved it. And I have to say, the places I went in, I didn't, I didn't hang there. It wasn't my hang up. Mm -hmm. But I was more welcome in there than if I'd have brought them in, in mine. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. Me too. I felt that. Mm -hmm. But that's just my experience. Mm -hmm. Me too. Another barrier to Ishtar being the crew of the lesbian everyman was money. Who we thought would be a good king or queen, and like Marsha said, it was who could afford it, mm -hmm. you know, because it, it cost you some money to do this. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we wanted someone who was going to come out and look nice. We didn't want somebody that, it's terrible to say, we couldn't afford to buy a very nice and outfit and afford everything that went with it. And at the time, you were, uh, had to afford what you could afford. It wasn't like a club, a club could say, Exactly, we're going to we pay want for you, it. And we know you can't afford it, so we all, the club's going to pay for it. Right, right, right. We, we hadn't established right. that level. Right. You individually, right. You individually had to be able to afford it. I was surprised. And, I, I was picked off the floor, and I didn't know what it was going to cost me. Right. Well, my king outfit was like $2,000, which... For me, as a school, as a school teacher, right yeah. in the '80s, that was a lot of money. Yeah. Right. That's a lot of money now, for, right? Yeah, right. And I think, and not everybody in the club could afford to be king and queen. So right. you, you know, or that, even a the maid. pickings were slimmer. Yeah. Or even a maid. Being properly dressed was not just an issue for the members of the court or the members of the crew, but everyone who attended the ball. No, it, it, formal, it had to be formal. Formal attire. It had to be, be in a, a formal dress or a tuxedo. And it didn't matter what. You couldn't be in a tea dress. You couldn't, you couldn't be, be in a dress below your knee. Diane actually addressed the crowd. Cocktail dress, yes. On one of our balls. Yes. That I, people I, came not appropriately dressed. And we refused and she, them. And they were gay people. Mm -hmm. and, we, and, and then we gave them instructions. This is not going to happen. We are not lowering our standards where people mm -hmm. can come dressed in just a little cocktail dress or a polo shirt. That's mm -hmm. not going to happen. This it was full attire. This is a formal event. We don't care if you're a man who dresses like a woman or you're a woman that dresses like a man. We don't care, but you're going to be dressed formally. But while money may have played into the divisions in the queer community, it also bridged the divide between the gay crews and the communities who would host their events. Because St. Bernard was not exactly gay friendly, mm -hmm. okay, I we at all. There. But, you know, money talks. Mm -hmm. So we were willing to rent their auditoriums. And like I said, pretty much every weekend during Mardi Gras, that auditorium was rented out with gay people, mm -hmm. okay? They didn't care. They were getting no. that money, and they didn't care. Right? Mm -hmm. As time went on, membership lessened, and the work became less rewarding. It got harder to find people who wanted to dedicate the necessary time to making the thing come alive. Finally, there was a disagreement between the three founders. Diane didn't want to talk about it. Suffice to say... You know, you, you got three Italians. Italian. Just getting rid of what's the thing, Italian. Right. You, you, you got, and I don't know if you know much about Italian people, okay, but, you oh. know, if, if you do something to an Italian person, it's like, you're dead. I'm not talking to you forever, you know. And they don't, you know, I mean, and so... But then again, they eat meatballs together. 
a month later or sometimes, you know. Right. <laughs> it comes right. back around. So it was unfortunate, but. That toilet flush was pure coincidence. In the end, Sue, Pino, and Diane were able to restore their friendship, but they never revived the crew. Many crews don't make it more than a couple of years, but rarely do they inspire the curiosity of future generations. And I said this to Marsha before we came here. I said, you know, Marsha, who would have ever thought when you and I were doing all of this, running around, cutting up, drinking, having fun, that one day we'd be sitting down and someone would want to hear, you know, right. about our past and we'd be in books. I've often said, you know, when we were doing this and all down in the bars and life was good and we are in our 20s and 30s and 40s and having a good time and uh, we just thought it would never end. And I always say that the thing about the past is you you don't know you're in it. Mm. Yeah. Never thought I would be talking of it as a past. Now, Ishtar survives in costumes, photographs, DVDs, actually, and memories, of course. Marcia says if there is a monument for Ishtar, it would be Sue Martino, mid-jitterbug, her golden champagne glass of a feather collar cradling her bright, smiling face and towering bouffant. So let me yeah. ask you a question. Yeah. Being a young person, yeah. would you, what if some carnival club decided, a ladies' carnival club decided to form, would you be interested in being a part of something like that? I would not. But I'd be happy to hear everyone's stories about it. And I do mean everyone. Special thanks to Gail Pellerin, Diane DeMasselli, and Marsha Robert for so generously sharing their stories with us. Special thanks to Nick Vaughn and Jake Margolin their project is called 50 States. You can find their work at nickandjakestudio.com or nickandjakestudio, all one word, on Instagram. Thanks also to Diverse Works for inviting me to Houston and showing me a great time. Diverse Works is a fantastic nonprofit funding fabulous work. You can find them at diverseworks.org, where you can also see footage of Nick and Jake's Louisiana piece please go check it out. It's beautiful. If you don't already follow Last Call NOLA on Instagram, please do. There will be ways to support our organization and community showing up there. Um, you can also follow us on Facebook at Last Call colon Queer Histories slash Queer Futures. If you want to follow my own personal work, I'm also on Instagram at Free for real, F R E E F E R E A L. Um, I'm a musician as well, and I'll be doing more live stream concerts and generating some children's content. So if you're interested in keeping up with that, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook, both with the same handle. Lane, if you're listening, I miss you, but I'm proud of you, and I hope you're happy. Again, Lane is now at Throughline in NPR. You can find that on any podcast platform. 
Thanks everybody. Stay safe out there. Stay happy and healthy and connected. And most of all, stay gay. <laughs>